I'm Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Walter. And this is The Climate Crisis. If people really take this stuff to heart, they really have to take it to heart. In my experience, people who go through that process do not return to denial, do not stay in despair, and they end up in a spirit of cherishing what they have, what they are cherishing their loved ones, cherishing a walk in nature, um, and, the, and cherishing the opportunity to be open and honest about your feelings and how you see the world and stop pretending. That's the voice of Jim Bendel talking about the climate crisis and taking it to heart and yes. speaking the truth, saying how it is and feeling what's there to feel. Well, he's become a real leader in the whole climate emergency revolution, if you like. And you were in his workshop in October last year. So what happened there, Michael? In the UK, that workshop that he led was co-led by Katie Carr. Okay. And... Um, uh, who did an incredible job. Yeah, well, it was um, well, it's interesting workshop to begin with. I think there's, this is going to be happening more and more in the coming times that people are going to be doing workshops like mm. this where people get together and feel and talk about it. And I think what really struck me in this one, very super intelligent folks gathered mm. there, you know, really high-end professionals speaking very uh, eloquently about mm. what the, what was going on, but also feeling really deeply what was going on. So mm. it was really an honour to be there, to be honest. Mm. Mm. Well, in today's show, we'll be listening to interviews with four of the women from the workshop. They're all professional women. One's a doctor, there's a psychotherapist, someone who runs a death cafe, and a managing director of a sustainable business. Mm. And all the women will be talking about the personal impact of climate change on them and also how it affects how they work with others. Let's go back in time, back to October last year yeah. in GEMS workshop in the UK and we're speaking to Pamela Candia, who is the managing director of a company called The Surefoot Effect. And they facilitate workshops and individual sessions that um, equip groups and organisations in the UK and Europe uh, with skills for sustainability and resilience. And she also was a very big-hearted woman. And let's listen to what she said. I'm Pam Candia. The last 14 years or so, I've been working to help people take action on dangerous climate change. And increasingly, I've felt uh, that all that effort is probably not enough and not enough change has been made. When I started all of this, I remember someone asking me, well, surely they're doing something about it. And I knew then that they were not, and that our voices as individuals weren't loud enough to be heard over the voices of corporate interests and the almighty need to pursue continual economic growth. And so I've had the feeling for quite some time that the end of times is upon us and will come quicker than we dare even think. When Jem's paper came out, I felt like, oh, finally, somebody who maybe a lot of people will listen to because he's a professor and he's done a lot of um, very exacting research and has put everything together into a package people can understand, maybe, maybe people will listen. 
but also with the sinking realization that it's too late mm. to fix the problem. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about why you came here and what you're getting by being here? For me, the reason to come, the main reason, maybe the only reason to come was to be with people that I could talk to this stuff about. Um, day in and day out, I work with people who are very concerned about the state of the planet from all sorts of directions, social justice and climate change and, mm. and various other resource depletion issues, mm. but they are not at a place where they can talk about imminent collapse and I don't feel it's safe for me to bring that up with just anybody in my work I like to meet people where they are on their journey and so finding people with whom it's safe for both me and them to talk about these things um, is a little bit of a, a jewel and so that's why I wanted to come on this workshop there was a piece today uh, where you were talking about death Mm. And um, and you were quite moved in that experience. Could you tell? Could you just speak a little bit about what happened for you in that? Mm. So I voiced and showed my distress at witnessing the suffering of other beings, perhaps on a mass scale, and uh, it hurts to even think about it, let alone talk about it. And I just, I want to be of service. And I feel like if I'm falling apart myself because of my distress at the horror of what I fear will come, that I won't be able to help people. And the people in my group helped me to see that maybe what I am able to feel will be of comfort to someone. Mm. Yeah, gave me a little strength. It's the very beautiful voice there of Pam Candia. Pam just has that capacity in her to go in and meet something and create a conversation from yeah. that place. That must have been incredible yeah. to do that interview. Well, Michael, it was right. Um, and be in the workshop with It her. was right, sort of right in the heart of the workshop. Mm. And there was a lot of people having a lot of feelings right at that point in time. Yeah. You know, the depth of her understanding is quite remarkable. And also when she was talking about, look, she has to decide who's safe to talk to and who's not. I mean, I, yeah, I really loved that. It's something it made me aware too that not everyone is ready for a climate conversation and to have that sensitivity, like what am I opening up here um, when I bring that conversation? But at the same time, also listening to her, what actually happened is that I remembered what Catherine Ingram had said in another show, which was um, people who are able to feel what's happening in the message can become a shade tree for others. Mm. And when I heard Pam at the end, I thought, she is that shade tree. Mm. Undoubtedly, she you know? is that I, shade tree. I feel tree. I could really be in my grief with that mm. woman. Mm. She's being yeah. honest. She's yeah. not trying to yeah. fix it. She's yeah. not trying to yeah. change it. Yeah. Very beautiful. Managing director of a company that has conversations with people in the UK and across Europe. Mm. That's who she is. Mm. And it's quite extraordinary to have mm. a leader, mm. you know, of, a, of an organisation mm. like that that can go to that sort of place. So, mm. And have the awareness mm. of um, when to talk about it and when maybe not to talk about it, yeah. that it's too much. Yeah, yeah.
Softly in the evening dusk, a woman is singing to me. She takes me back down the vista of my years until I see. I see a child underneath the piano and the boom of the tingling strings, pressing the poised feet of his mother, who smiles at him as she sings. So let's go back to another interview from from that same workshop. And we're speaking to Gillian Kelly, uh, and we'll find out what she said. It was about midway through, mid three quarter way through the workshop when I was when I was talking to her. My name's Gillian Kelly. I'm a psychotherapist, and I also facilitate uh, family constellations workshops, looking at generational trauma, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, I I have been. More, I've always been interested in what's happening to the environment. Not just interested, I suppose I've been very concerned about what's happening to the environment for several decades, really, since the 70s. Um, I have become increasingly alarmed at the inaction, knowing what we have been storing up for ourselves, knowing the destruction that's going on. And in the last two or three years, that concern has intensified, um, particularly, particularly since I, um, <clears throat> particularly since I um, started to oppose fracking, um, not very far from where I live, quite a long way away, but um, in the area where I was born and brought up, mm. there's a threat uh, that fracking is going to begin. And it's the beginning of fracking for gas in the UK. And it is. it seems to me it's, it's the first domino to fall. Mm. And if that um, takes hold, if that is allowed to go mm. ahead, uh, really the whole of England anyway would be industrialised in a most a terrible way. Mm. And also, um, methane, of course, is much more, mm. a much more powerful global warmer mm. than CO2, mm. even. Mm. So, as all fossil fuels now really must stay in the ground if we're to survive, uh, this industry in particular must not go ahead. So, at a very late stage in my life, I started to take action and I took direct action against the fracking company and uh, and was arrested and so on and so on, um, which was a huge surprise to me because I was 73 at the time. And um, so since then I have been more and more and more acutely aware of what's happening to the planet. And I have realized um, that we face extinction, that we are maybe in the middle of the sixth mm. great extinction. So what's the, what's the point then, if that's, if that's how you feel, what's the point of coming to a workshop like this and what have you gotten by being here? Well, one of the points is to meet other people who see this as clearly 
as I see it, because it's quite a lonely place out there because not many people uh, are able to see it, have the information, uh, or or have or dare to see it really. Um, it's unbearable and so one of the points is really to meet and be with just be with other people who feel the same and and maybe i don't expect i don't expect to find some solution or to change that reality i am interested in how to be how to go on being how to live how to support my children and my grandchildren and myself and my partner how, how we can be facing the end of the world wow that was such a strong message from Gillian Kelly you know I was very powerful to hear her talk about facing extinction mm. and how lonely that is mm. And that she's been living with this message for 40 years. Mm. I particularly liked what she said around that she doesn't expect that there's anything can, that she can do. Uh, it's just more about how to face it, how to help her children face it, how to help her partner face it. Mm. Uh, coming face to face with you know what I consider is also the reality of these times. One of the interesting things too, she she speaks about being on that fracking protest. Yes, and um, you know the backstory behind that yeah. is she was there, seventy three, uh, with her partner, with her uh, when with her son mm. and uh, her granddaughter. So three generations all locked together. And Isn't that wonderful? As, and apparently, also the policeman that were, came to arrest them mm. saw her there, and you know asked if she wanted to have a cup of tea. <laughs> Oh, very English. Water, a cup of tea. <laughs> I just, there's something lovely about that whole story. Christine Gibson. Uh, I'm a medical doctor from Calgary, Canada. As a medical practitioner, as someone who's expected to be a healer, this is the time where that paradigm is going to get thrown out the window. This is a situation and we are people um, that can't be cured. So I'm trying to explore what healing looks like in these times 
And that's for myself as well. You know, how is it that I'm going to find the personal resilience to, to face what's coming? And because certain professionals will have more asked of them, we're already seeing a lot of the eco grief and the people who are suffering from more mental health conditions because they're more awake to the truth or they're just seeing a lack of meaning to being future thinking and to, to, to stay in the existing paradigms. And it's not so much curing that as validating that and figuring out together how to journey forward in that knowing. The point she makes there about this thing we, where people can't come into future thinking and agreeing with the mm. paradigm we're in. And in previous times, mm. people would have been trying to treat that. And mm. she's saying this is not something that can or should be cured. This is something that needs to be validated. It's a, just a whole different paradigm of being with people. Yes, no, absolutely. And of course, doctors and psychologists and healthcare workers have to sort of look at what they're doing um, and their therapies, like she brings it out. Like it's no longer that the doctor is the expert when you're talking about people coming with eco-grief because it isn't a condition that can be cured with medicines or technology. It's something that we're all in together and there's no division between a patient and a doctor or a client and a therapist because we're actually all collectively experiencing it. Mm. There is no answer. You're ex mm. experiencing a real response to a real problem. Yes. And yes. I'm experiencing it too. Yes, exactly. How different is that? How different is that? Uh, better in some ways, actually. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, wouldn't say that there's anything better about the situation we're in, but it, it's good to break down those hierarchies. Yeah. Yeah. And she goes further now. She goes further and asks, you know, some very deep questions that she feels might be coming to her profession. So let's go yes. back to the second half of this interview with Christine Gibson. And there's a little bit of wind interference. Um, wasn't much I could do about that. Um, Christine Gibson back in October at Jem Bendel's workshop. You know, we're, we're going to be asked to to shift our paradigm really quickly around health care. How can the community learn what healing care looks like in these times? And I know the medical profession will be asked about when suffering becomes unbearable, how do we respond? And there's a lot of places where a medically assisted death is possible for suffering and then how do we collectively respond to suffering that might come into our communities with a compassion um, and a willingness to host those deep conversations and even a healing through that process and I think it will be really hard on us as a profession to step forward and unlearn our expertise and very, very quickly adapt to the changes that are coming. And these bigger questions that have always been in the background, but they've been really easy not to sit with. I guess I've found that I'm still more stuck in the old paradigm than I had hoped I was. So 
I find it reassuring to talk about tools and ways we can build community resilience and ways that I still have expertise. So I'm seeing more of an invitation around not necessarily unlearning, but widening, you know, my field and my view. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure what it's gonna take. I, I take steps into it and then I stay, take a step back from it too. And there's, there's an offering and even a finding of purpose in all of it, but there's also fear and there's resistance. And I think that's, in the greater field, but it's also very true in myself. I really love her humility in that. Yeah, me too. You know, her sense of actually, I'm still in the old paradigm. You oh. know, she's super intelligent woman. Oh, yes. yes you can... Super intelligent. She, you know, she also raised a point earlier there around um, what happens with how do the medical oppressed how does the medical profession approach a time where there may be mass suffering yes what's its response to suffering yeah and she was saying there are circumstances where people can be put out of their suffering that's within yeah. the medical profession as it stands yeah. now yeah. what would happen if that was on a larger scale and it's yes. a question that's a, that's a brand new question for the medical profession to take on isn't it it is and what occurs to me as you say that i mean there's the suffering where people may want to end their life but there's also um, they're predicting a lot more diseases vector-borne diseases and and people becoming ill from heat waves and the effects of extreme weather events mm -hmm. so even just there will there may indeed be more need for um, medical assistant hospitals and the government is not preparing this at all there's not an increase in funding. As, as David Ritter said, we listened to him. There Bluefield, is no plan. no plan, folks. There is no plan. <laughs> There's no one at the tiller. Absolutely. Anyway, so except scary. ourselves, except yeah. ourselves of our own tiller, yeah. our own emotional tiller and how we prepare. That's right. Yeah. And and the village response. I yeah. hold a lot of great faith. I mean, looking towards the government, there's no real leadership to be found there. But within the communities that we, we live in, um, that's where I think the real leadership will come. Many tribes of a modern kind doing brand new 
work, same spirit by side, joining hearts and hands in ancestral twine, ancestral twine. Slowly it fades. final interview that we've got there is with a woman, uh, Sue Brain, yes. who leads something called a death cafe. It's very interesting to hear what Sue Brain has to say. And basically, climate change is bringing death into our face. We can no longer ignore it. It's a conversation that has to be had, or it yeah. brings certainly brings it forward. So let's have a listen to Sue. A death cafe is an opportunity for people to come and talk about end of life, death and dying, and anything in between. Um, about what really matters to them and in my understanding of talking to a lot of people about death and dying it isn't that death is a taboo it's the fact they don't know how to talk about it and death cafes give them the space and the permission to come and do that there's going to be people listening to that that will go well this whole conversation about the climate's depressing enough and now there's a death cafe of what value uh, to go there I don't think we can really begin to address the magnitude and what it's going to do to us um, as, a, as nations, as countries, as individuals, unless we really connect with the fact that we're on a mortal journey. We are, all of us are going to die in some respect. And my experience of people talking about death is that opens them up to just something higher and better than them and because of that that they can start to engage with the enormity of what climate change is going to mean for us all. What happened today was the fact having the opportunity to talk about end of life that each one of us in the circle was going to die at some point, climate change or no climate change. And it's sort of it's it's an incredibly bonding experience to come together and look at each other in the eye and just say this is going to happen, not in, uh, in our own death naturally, but also that climate change is bringing death into our face now. And we can't ignore that. And do you think if people start talking about death that it will make them less active on the planet or less active in how they go about um, addressing the mm. issues that we're facing? Well, in my experience of running, I've run over 60 death cafes now, people who come to death cafes and engage with the fact they're going to die are fully alive. Because unless you engage with death, you're not actually fully engaging with life and I think that's my experience of being fully engaged with my own mortality makes me hungry to live every single moment that I have in the best way possible but especially important now with the backdrop of climate change and what that means to us all. Nishprapanchaya shantaya Niralambayate jase Om na